Jennifer Bosworth grew up in the small coal mining town of Price, Utah, where the slow pace and isolated location gave her lots of time to read and create stories. At the University of Utah, Jennifer almost completed the secondary school teaching program, her backup in case her writing career didn't work out. But a professor actually discouraged her from going into teaching, knowing that it wasn't her passion and it wouldn't afford her time to write. So, two classes short of completing the program, Jennifer stopped, determined not to follow a career path she didn't love. After finishing a continuing education class at the university, Jennifer filled out a survey that asked if she was interested in teaching a class. Not expecting anyone to actually take her up on it, she said, sure, why not? She could teach writing in her favorite genres of horror, fantasy, and science fiction. But to her surprise, the school actually called. She didn't feel qualified, and she hadn't yet published anything herself. But teaching the class forced her to really study the genres and ended up being an education for her as well as for her students. Jennifer moved to Los Angeles with her husband Ryan in 2004. She loves the diversity and creativity of the city and used it as the setting for her debut novel, Struck, which was published in May of 2012. We talked to Jennifer about having a character who's a lightning addict, landing an agent after a pitch fest, and filming a totally awesome book trailer as Jennifer Bosworth joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Krista Bean, and today we're welcoming to the show young adult author Jennifer Bosworth. Thank you for joining us today, Jennifer. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, your debut novel is called Struck, and it was released in May of this year. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, yeah, Struck is about a teenage girl named Mia Price, who is, uh, she's not only a human lightning rod, she's also a lightning addict, which is um, a term nobody's really heard before because I made <laughs> it up. Um, she, uh, she's she been struck by lightning hundreds of times throughout her life, and she's um, kind of developed this addiction to it. It's, um, you know, it, it's like thrilling, it makes her feel alive, it's, you know, it's like a drug to her. Um, but because, you know, Lightning does you know, a lot of a lot of different things to people who are struck. Um, it has a, a number of negative after effects. Uh, one is that she has these Lichtenberg figures all over her body, which um, they look like red lightning on the skin, and they're they're a real lightning phenomena that happen to a lot of people who are struck. Um, and every time she's struck by lightning, they grow on her skin until they're covering almost her entire body just you know right up to her neck so mm-hmm. um, at the point in the story when we begin she is you know covered up to her neck she if she's struck by lightning one more time though the lightning scars will continue to grow so because of this and and you know because she has accidentally hurt other people in the past uh, with you know, being struck by lightning and being uh, near other people she and her family moved to L.A. where um, lightning rarely strikes. It only strikes a handful of times every year. Mm-hmm. And soon after, she you know, she trades uh, thunderstorms for earthquakes, and a massive earthquake destroys you know, much of the city. Um, and in the aftermath, two doomsday cults rise to power, uh, one that wants to save the world and one that wants to destroy it. And Mia is the key to them fulfilling their apocalyptic visions. So kind of, um, it's a post-apocalyptic story, but it's also a supernatural story. Wow. It sounds like a very complex um, premise. And and how did you, I mean, there's there's the lightning and the doomsday and everything. How did you um, first come up with the idea and then manage to work all of those kind of big elements in together? 
Um, I first, you know, I always, I knew that I wanted to write a story about um, a human lightning rod, but I didn't, I didn't know that much about it. So I started researching, you know, real life human lightning rods. And I read about this man who, um, he held the world record for most lightning strikes survived, which was seven. Mm-hmm. And wow. he was a park ranger back east. And he, um, he would drive around with a bucket of water in the back of his truck because he never knew when he'd be struck by lightning and, and may catch on fire and have to put himself out. So, oh my you know, it was very, very strange that, you know, it, people started to avoid him because, you know, you don't want to be standing next to someone when they're struck by lightning because lightning can jump from one person to another. Um, mm. So it kind of, you know, it had a really terrible effect on his life and, you know, he was in danger all of the time, you know, all, he was spending so much time outside because he's a park ranger. So, you know, I, I read about this guy and I had to ask myself, you know, why didn't he just get another job? <laughs> why not get an, an office job or, you know, move to, you know, another part of the country where there's not so much lightning and, and you know, be a park ranger there. Uh, so I just started thinking, like, what if he likes it? What if he, you know, is struck by lightning and it, it makes him feel good, but, you know, then afterward it's bad, like, um, like with a drug where, you know, you would do a drug and you'd feel good at the time, but then everything would be bad afterwards. So that was kind of when I, I started to form this idea of somebody who was addicted to lightning. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, the story, the story kind of evolved from there. Wow. Yeah, that, that's really cool. And, and, and the lightning strikes are one of those things you think, oh, if you struck, struck by lightning, you're dead automatically. There's so many cases where that's not the case and people that have extremely interesting, you know, reactions to it. So, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Now, right, there's, that was, you know, it was, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. <laughs> oh, it's, you know, that was one of the things in the research was that, um, you know, lightning can do so many different things to people. And, you know, so there were all these possibilities. And I think that's, you know, with writing fiction, it's, you know, it's, what's possible that you know, really gets people really gets the imagination going and, and you can, you know, there's so much you can do with lightning. Um, and that it just got me so excited about, you know, the idea, this natural phenomenon, there's, there's so much real stuff that you can use and then you can take it farther and make it supernatural. So. Well, and, and how, when you're writing about things, you've got the, the lightning and you've got the earthquake and all these things in your book, how scientifically accurate do you feel you need to be? I mean, obviously it's a work of fiction, so there's a lot of, of uh, creative license you can take. But do you ever do you feel um, like I, I know when I'm writing and, and something comes up that's sort of tied into real life, and I'm kind of a stickler for like, oh, I should really try to make it sound the way it really was. But obviously in a novel, you don't really need to do that. At what what degree do you feel that way? Um, you know, for me, I I love to make things as real as possible because I think there's, there's so much, um, truly strange. There's, there's, there's so much strange that you can use in the, in the real world. Um, and lightning is, is not understood. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, scientists don't really understand that much about it. So you can, you can take a lot of creative license, but it's still um, somewhat grounded in reality. Um, like there are a lot of things, uh, that, people don't know that have happened with, um, with lightning strikes. Like I, I saw a documentary about lightning and about a woman who was struck by lightning who had multiple sclerosis and she was struck by lightning and she was cured. So, wow. um, 
and it's so there's something going on there. There's there's so much possibility, but nobody knows why she was cured. They it, it must have reset something um, in her nervous system, mm-hmm. but nobody really understands it. So um, I felt like I I I grounded everything in scientific facts. Um, even the earthquake stuff with with struck. There is in the in the book I write about a certain fault line that runs beneath downtown LA, the one that you know goes off and causes the earthquake. Mm-hmm. And that's a real fault line that most people don't know is there. <laughs> so you know that's and if they knew it was there, maybe they wouldn't live in downtown LA where <laughs> a lot of tall glass buildings. Um, but you know I I actually found that out after I started writing the book. I was hoping that there was some sort of fault line under downtown so I wouldn't have to make it up. Uh-huh. And there just happened to be. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of the science worked in my favor. Um, you know, and, and with uh, with earthquakes and lightning, they're both, you know, energy, energy-based. Like an earthquake um, is caused by friction, which is a kind of energy, and lightning is energy. So I felt like those two things could go together. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I take liberties with the science behind that, but, um, you know, maybe it's possible. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's, nobody's said it is not possible. So, well, I think if you have a woman who's cured of multiple sclerosis by a, a lightning strike, I think anything's possible. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, you're a big fan. You've always been a big fan of um, dark stories, and Stephen King is, you know, one of your favorite authors and a big influence on you. Um, but a, a lot of dark stories, obviously, are very adult, sort of R-rated. Um, and yet you've written a young adult novel. How did that transition take place? Um, it was, you know, it was kind of a long transition. I started out trying to write adult novels, and, you know, they were always very dark. Um, but my characters themselves seemed younger. Like, they, it wasn't an immaturity thing. It was kind of a, it was like the issues that they were dealing with were younger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I didn't really know there was a young adult genre at the time I started writing. Um, I think a lot of young adult authors now, they, they, they saw what happened with Twilight and they realized, oh, this is a genre and mm-hmm. I could write in this, I could try this. <laughs> and, you know, like, so a lot of people tried it because of Twilight, which is, you know, it, kind of a great thing about that book. It's not, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be everybody's favorite book, but, it did jumpstart the genre in a lot of ways. And so I, you know, at the time I was working at a school um, and I was seeing a lot of kids, I was working like an after school program and Twilight came out and I read Twilight and I was looking at, you know, the kids I was working with and there was so much drama in their lives and so many issues and, and they were just so, you know, interesting. They're so uh, full of life, I guess. It's, <laughs> there's just always, they're always they're they're like in a constant transition. They're they're constantly changing from one day to the next, and I think that, um, you know, it's the it's the amount of change that a young adult character can go through that really interested me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of adult novels they they're not changing quite as much. They're not dealing with these um, the same kinds of issues that um, feel so. Um, you know, pivotal. Yeah. It's like you, you're dealing with a lot of, you know, smaller issues maybe. And as a teenager, you, you know, you're at a crossroads like every day. Yeah. You can, you can, you can change the kind of person you are still. And 
So, you know, and the dark, the dark stuff that I like to write about, I think young adults are attracted to really dark issues. I think that um, they are possibly, um, you know, even more fascinated by it than adults are a lot of the time. Maybe because they, you know, the world is not, it doesn't feel safe to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they don't have a lot of control. They don't have a lot of power. And, you know, maybe that that helps, like, reading reading kind of darker fiction um, is a way to have some sort of catharsis with that, you know, yeah. with that part of life, that, that out-of-control part of being a teenager. I, well, yeah, I agree. And it, it's like that that age where, you know, you're almost an adult, but a lot of the world is still kind of new. You know, a lot of things you're still, you're experiencing for the first time. And um, when you have, you know, especially in darker stories, when you have very kind of pivotal issues or life and death issues at stake, and it's like, you know, you could be reading it and, and asking yourself, you know, well, what would I do in this situation? Um, it sort of mirrors life as you're kind of every day asking yourself, well, who do I want to be? What person, what kind of person am I going to become? And, and it's just kind of reflected in, in you know, very crucial issues in, in the books that they read. Right. And, and these dark stories are usually dark because they're dealing with some, you know, huge issue like the end of the world or, you know, monsters, whether they're metaphorical or, or literal. And, you know, that's, you know, it's, I think kids read it and they, they feel the importance, the, you know, kind of um, uh, parabolic importance of those sorts of stories. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it reads well to them. It, it, um, it translates well to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I also, also think it's great that there's, that um, uh, the young adult genre is so, big now. Cause I know, um, when I was in high school, I, I, I didn't read outside of school because I did so much reading in school that the last thing I wanted to do outside of school was pick up another book. You know, I wanted to right. watch a movie or hang out with my friends or do something that did not involve a book. But I think part of that looking back on it was that there wasn't a lot to choose from. I mean, you know, compared, compared to today when the, the, the genre is so much, you know, there's so much more, um, offered out there. I think, right. you know, I kind of look back like, Oh, I wonder. I wonder how different it would have been back in the '90s, but yeah. And the the things that um, that you are assigned to read in high school are, you know, they're they're typically they're important books, but they're not very much fun. Yes. Um, a lot of the time, and yeah. you know, if you don't make reading fun, then kids are not going to want to do it. <laughs> right. They have to deal with a, a lot of unfun things anyway. So. <laughs> You know, if you can give them a fun book that is also, you know, deals with important issues, mm-hmm. then I think that's, you know, that's um, that's going to create a love of reading forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's yeah. going to make their lives better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so being a being a teenager is not even if you have, you know, a wonderful family and you know, you're economically sound. You know, being a teenager is almost always really an unhappy time for people. It's, yeah. you know, I look back on it and, you know, I had a, I had great parents. Um, we lived in a, like a perfectly nice house. I had a perfectly nice life, but I was a very unhappy teenager mm-hmm. um, just for, for my own reasons. Cause I was trying to find out who I was. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's a hard time for people when you're trying to figure out who you are, that it's those, that doesn't really go well with being happy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. And um, now, if you could t- 
talk a little bit? I know you mentioned that before writing young adult, you were writing some adult things. I know a lot of published novelists have that, you know, that that first novel sitting in a drawer somewhere that's never seen the light of day. Do you you have some stuff like that? I do. Actually, my my first two novels, I I didn't understand what it, what it meant to write a high concept story at the time, and hmm. So I was just putting every idea I had into, <laughs> into these <laughs> novels and, you know, they just got bigger and bigger. So my first novel was 800 pages. My second <laughs> novel was almost 900 pages. And I didn't know how it, they, they were just, they just kept growing and growing. And, you know, I was, I was writing plenty, you know, I was every day I was sitting down and, and writing my, my 2000 words and, but I was just not getting to the end, <laughs> the end of the story ever, because I was packing them with just so many ideas. And you know, it's a good thing I moved to LA because I studied screenwriting. Because you know, you're in LA, everybody's got to try screenwriting at one point. <laughs> um, so I studied screenwriting a little bit, and um, I found out what it, what high concept meant. And I just this would have helped me so much to know <laughs> earlier that you know that you just you really just need one good idea. You don't need, you know, 20 good ideas to right. all into one book. So as soon as I found that out and, you know, it just clicked and it was so obvious, but, um, that was, that was the thing that, that was when I turned a corner and started writing books that actually had, you know, a concept you could sell. Hmm. <laughs> so that was, that was a great, that was a great thing. Screenwriting has some very good lessons to teach. I agree. And and also about um uh with um structure and keeping things um concise, you know, the idea yeah. of cutting out any little word that doesn't, you know, further the plot. Yeah, you it teaches you how to be economical with language and that's important in writing young adult literature too, because you know, if there's any really big difference between uh, young adult and adult novels aside from the age of the characters, it's the pace. You know, you have to keep it. You have to keep the pace going. Yeah. Um, a lot of adult novels, I'll, I'll read them now, and I'm like, okay, description is going to stop any minute yeah. now. But, yeah. <laughs> but it, you know, it's you. It's funny because teenagers, you know, seems like they have more time on their hands maybe than an adult would. But they, you know, you got to get to the point with the with the stories for teenagers. Yeah, the short attention span. Yeah, within the first chapter, that's got to be you know, almost plot point one, like in the first, in the first chapter. Um, yeah. <laughs> so now what's a normal writing day like for you? Just on a tip- typical Wednesday, you wake up and what's your writing schedule like? Um, my ideal writing schedule is to start right away. Um, you know, showers can wait. <laughs> it's just to like get up and start writing. Um, ever since, since Struck was published, I've had to um, be more flexible with, my writing schedule and, you know, write when I can instead of, you know, always just write in the morning and that is what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's, it feels good to, to learn how to be more flexible though. And, you know, I, I was so rigid before with my schedule and the amount that I would write every day. Um, but it's actually been helpful to kind of learn how to write while, you know, anything's going on. Like, right while bullets are flying or whatever it doesn't it doesn't it's good to have the routine but if you can't ever deviate from your routine that's you know you're 
you're you may be doing yourself a disservice. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I think a lot of a lot of times there there's a a good time of the day to write, but you can write any time. And you know, for people who have full time jobs and kids and you know a lot of responsibilities, you they have to write when they can. And I think yeah. any writer, even if you have the entire day, um, you know you. You can't just write when you want. You have to write when you can, and mm-hmm. you know you can't wait for inspiration. You have to. You, you sometimes you have to start writing before the inspiration will hit. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, rarely do I you know wake up and and you know have the inspiration already there. It's it's writing really gets your mind moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've often found that cause I always have a hard time sitting down and plotting out a story from beginning to end because when I'm in the middle of writing, that seems to be when the new ideas kind of pop into my head and like, Oh, this is a much better direction to go. And I'll be changing directions, you know, <laughs> mid stride. But um, yeah, it's a, just getting your butt in the chair and putting your hands on the keyboards. It's like half the battle sometimes. Yeah. And it's, you know, some people, I, I used to write 2000 words a day and, you know, I thought that was, you know, that was the way to go. Um, but after a while I realized, you know, sometimes I'm writing too much in a day and, I, I start to, I've, I lose, you know, I lose the thread. Like, I don't know what I want to do next. And so I just go off on a tangent, which takes me off in the wrong direction. <laughs> Sometimes it's also, it's not just a matter of, um, you know, forcing yourself to start. It's a matter of knowing when to stop. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, you, you can start to, to do more harm than good if you write too much in a day. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting point. Cause it's, you know, it sort of becomes the law of diminishing return. Sometimes the longer you're sitting there, the less productive you're being. It's like, just take a break, walk away, get some fresh air. And, you know, then you're that much more rejuvenated when you sit back down again. But um, yeah. how, long, how long did it take you to write Struck? Um, from the, the beginning first draft to the final draft that went out on submission, it was about two years. Okay. Uh, the first first draft I wrote pretty quickly because... I had pitched the book to an agent, to my agent, um, at a pitch fest at Santa Barbara Writers Conference, and mm-hmm. I wasn't, so I wasn't finished with it. <laughs> I pitched it anyway, and I didn't tell her I wasn't finished. Um, so, but she, when she asked for the full, I still had, you know, I was maybe like two thirds of the way through, um, um, and I didn't want to tell her it wasn't finished. So I hurried, <laughs> I hurried, and within you know a week wrote like the last hundred or hundred and fifty pages. Oh, no. uh, and I, I know. So I gave her like this raw hamburger draft. <laughs> um, it was such a mess, but you know, I think she saw the potential in it, and so she, she didn't sign me on that draft. It would be, you know, it would be that story that makes people hate you if she did sign me on that draft. Right. <laughs> but um, she, so we worked together on revisions for about a year, and then, um, you know, we when she took it out. Uh, you know, I'd revised so much that my editorial letter from my from my editor at FSG was um, was really short and and minimal because I had really done the work beforehand, and so that was nice. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's good. And yeah, yeah. my my actual uh, next question was going to be, how did you land your agent? So could you talk just a little bit about that pitch session and what sort of went on there and how you found out about that? Yeah, it was. Um, so they during a pitch fest, it's a room full of agents and editors, and you know they, they let you in kind of like this cattle call 
and everybody finds their, you know, their person that they've been assigned to or that they've chosen. And, you know, you sit down and, you know, my, my, you, know, you get 10 minutes usually and you need to not talk that much. You would think just since it's pitching that you would talk a lot, but, you know, you should talk about your project for maybe a minute and mm-hmm. then let the agent or, or editor ask you questions because um, usually at a pitch fest they've, They've been sitting there all day, just like hearing, you know, so many, so many stories, and and you need to interact with them, and you need to listen to them, and mm-hmm. uh, so I I went over the basic premise, and um, then you know just let my you know my future agent ask me questions, and so that one you know that's it, it went really really well. I like I like pitch sessions because it gives people a chance to see you, and you know if you're if you're sane and they can see that you're sane, then that's, that's great. <laughs> and <laughs> any time want to work with you. Exactly. Yeah. And anytime there's FaceTime, if they can put a face to your name rather than just being a name on a piece of paper, I think it's, you know, it's a really good, um, a good yeah, way to go. Is, you know, all con- like conferences, even if you're not pitching, if you're just, you know, meeting people and making connections, it's always, you know, it's good to, uh, you know, to personalize what you're doing. It, it makes it less, you know, shot in the dark to send out a query letter if you've at least met them and, and talked to them for a minute. Right. And the, the question um, is, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. <laughs> uh, um, the the questions they asked you, were they more about your story in and of itself or more about, like, theoretically, if they were to publish you, like, your, your platform and that sort of thing further down the road? Um, they asked about the story. They ask, you know, usually um, – for more details about the parts that interest them and, mm-hmm. you know, more about the character and, uh, you know, it becomes a conversation, which mm-hmm. is, I think, the, you know, the way it needs to go during a pitch session. It needs to be more of a, a back and forth and equal mm-hmm. back and forth. And, you know, for people who go to a pitch session and, you know, maybe the agent or editor is not interested in what they pitch, mm-hmm. it's still a great opportunity just to ask questions of them. Oh, and, yeah. You know, ask about what they're looking for, what their, you know, what their agency is like, or um, just general questions about the business, because it's kind of, um, it's, it's hard to really understand it until you're in it. Um, yeah. There's a lot of people don't tell you about how, how publishing a book works. And so, you know, that's, that's just a good opportunity to get some inside information because you've got the 10 minutes with them no matter what, right? Even if they're not interested in yeah. the pitch. Yeah. And did yeah, you so did you um, have a, a pitch? Did you have like a rehearsed pitch that was practiced? That Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good to practice beforehand. Um, but, you know, not to go in, um, you know, trying to get it all out in, in a single breath. Um, <laughs> you know, don't like don't rush through it. But um you know, I I basically said, you know, what I what I told you, you know, about the book mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of the podcast. I that was pretty much what I said. I, I talked a lot about, you know, the uh, you know the lightning and the earthquakes, the the scenarios, the uh, supernatural stuff. I didn't really get into plot mm-hmm. um, because that's you know, you can tell, like, if somebody's eyes glaze over even a little bit, you have to wrap it up quickly. Um, oh, yeah. But I, I talked more about just the the concept of it. Mm-hmm. 
explaining the concept instead of getting into any sort of plot points or beats um, because it's much harder for them to take all of that in, you know, all at once. It's it's a lot to take in. Right, right. Especially if you're the 15th person they've seen that day. Yeah. Yeah, their minds are probably swirling with, you know, other people's stuff too. So you have to engage them and get them focused on, you know, the the basic idea. And and it's really important to get, a, you know, find a hook. Even if you have a really quiet story, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's maybe you don't have a hook at first, but trying to figure out what, what it is that makes your story unique. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing that's really going to get their attention is, it can be just one sentence and not a, a whole minute of of talking. It, it can just be that one little detail about a character or something ironic about the situation in the book that really gets their attention. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good point so, because a lot of those quiet stories, you know, you're not going to have gigantic earthquakes and all kinds of, of things that are, you know, like the, the money shot, so to speak. But it's, yeah, yeah. you have the... the <laughs> Interesting characters of the the trade-off. Now, what sort of things do you do to um, promote your book? I noticed online you you, um, visit a lot of libraries, and you also have um, a really, really cool uh, book trailer that you shot with your husband. Um, What what is your outlook on promoting your book? Um, You know, ever since uh, Shark came out, I've actually been more of a promoter than a writer. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, but it's, you know, it, it's something you you just have to get used to. Um, it's good to, it's the same same way. It's good to uh, have agents and editors see your face at a conference. It's good to have readers see mm-hmm. your face and um, you know to interact with them and you know get them to to see who you are. Like tell them your story um, because then it, it makes the it makes you know their experience of the book more special mm-hmm. and. So I do a lot of um, I do a lot of library events. I do a lot of panels. Um, when we talk about things like uh, that apply to, to my books in particular, like um, you know the the genre itself, or um, writing kick-ass heroines, which is something that I love to to talk about. And you know, I I, I try not to promote my book itself at all. Of these things I like to talk about you know, the issue at large and, and throw in stuff about my book because it's when you're, when you get too promotey, when you get too like me, 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 and it's all about mm-hmm. my book. Yeah. That doesn't really, that's not really what, you know, people are there for. They, you know, they can read, if they want to know about your book, they'll, they'll read your book. But um, if you're talking to them for an hour, you've got to have a lot to say about, you know, just interesting subjects. So um, I talk a lot about dystopian literature and, you know, why it's important. I, I think, you know, why it's important that we have, uh, you know, why, why why these trends are happening. Why is dystopian so huge? Um, why do we need strong female heroines in young adult literature? These, these are the kinds of things that I like to talk about instead of um, just talking about my book all the time. Um, right. And also, it's more, it's fun for me. <laughs> it's fun to go out. It's fun to go out and talk about this sort of thing, um, because I, I feel like, you know, it it affects change, and you know, that's one reason I write is because I I want, um, you know, I have a certain point of view that I want to get across, and um, you know, it 
doing the promotion gives me another platform for doing that. Um, but uh, the book trailer was, you know, just something that my husband and I, my husband's a director, and um, so and he has a visual effects background, so we thought this you know, perfect opportunity to create a really good marketing piece for the book, mm-hmm. um, which was, it was so much work, but it was so much fun. It was like, you know, actually getting to make kind of a mini movie. Yeah. Um, you know, we we shot whole we shot a whole scene from the book actually, um, like a whole chapter of the book, mm-hmm. um, which was it's just seeing your characters come to life in that way. Um, you know, we had we had such an amazing cast that we were we were very careful about casting because people can get really turned off by the wrong kind of casting in a book trailer. Um, yeah, because they're picturing them already before they've even read it. They already yeah. kind of have the idea. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they don't want you to put that image in their head. They don't want to have your character that you, you know, cast for something in their head. Um, but so it was just, it was really important that we have characters who, you know, even if they didn't look exactly like the character, that they embodied that character. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, probably the hardest one was um, casting the villain, uh, the prophet. Uh-huh. Because he has long white hair, and <laughs> we couldn't find an actor. We found a great actor, but he didn't have long white hair, so we tried to, we tried putting a wig on him. We <laughs> that didn't look good, so <laughs> we just colored his hair white and made it look kind of Dragon Ball Z. Um, but still, I get people saying, you know, that's not what Prophet's supposed to look like. <laughs> so that's yeah, that's yeah. the part that people have the most. They have an issue with, you know how we how we went about doing profits look but you know i like it i i still you know i think it's cool it looks cool but it's not true to the book well and how did you how did you go about writing the script for the promo taking your own book and and the scene that you said you shot the entire scene from the book did you take all the actual lines from the book or did you have to make adjustments for shooting purposes yeah that's you know that's a really important thing um you know there's no there's not really a resource out there that tells you how to do a trailer, like how to write a trailer. Mm-hmm. I tried to find that. <laughs> I tried <laughs> to find one, but um, it just doesn't exist. So I watched a lot of movie trailers and, you know, kind of got a sense for how they, um, you know, they do like a setup, um, kind of an inciting incident in the trailer. And then they get into kind of the fun and games section of the of the book doing, you know, montage and then kind of speed it up faster and faster toward the end. And you, you know, I think the most important thing is you can never see anything play out. Um, yeah. You know, you, you don't get to see how anything ends in a trailer or a book trailer because that's, that's not what it's about. It's about tantalizing people and, and making them want to find out what happened. So right. you know, best advice I can give for, uh, constructing the trailers you know don't don't give it all over (laughs) you know stop before the end um but writing it uh you know we adapted this uh or i adapted the this scene from the book and it started out as a 10-page chapter and i you know i wrote the original script for it and it was about six pages Mm -hmm. and by the time we shot it it was three pages Oh. We just kept on cutting things out and cutting more and more dialogue and, and cutting, you know, uh, beyond just cutting dialogue, cutting, uh, you know, just 
parts that didn't need to be, just the excess, um, excess like movements, just things that you know, didn't need to be in there. Mm-hmm. So I think with adaptation of of a book to a book trailer or you know a movie or anything, um, you just have to you have to write it how you want it in the beginning and then just keep going through. You know, give yourself lots of time to just take a step back, mm-hmm. read it again. You know, a few days later, cut some more things. You know, just keep on cutting until you know you're down to the bare bones <laughs> because. For one thing, it's it's cheaper. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you're especially if you're paying for your own trailer, which you know I I, I paid for my trailer, um, you don't have you don't you don't have the liberty of, of spending as much as you want and as much time and and everything on um, doing exactly what you would have wanted originally. But sometimes that's better. Right. It speeds the pace up because you're you don't have any fat. In yeah. the trailer, you know, it should, there should be no fat. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, we, we've shot some of our own stuff before as well. And it's like, you're, you know, it's going down on paper and you think, oh, this is going to be so cool. And it's back of your mind. You're thinking, where are we going to shoot that? How's that going to work out? Wait, that's a, you know, a full street <laughs> shot lit at night. That's not going to work. We need to put that somewhere else, put it indoors. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of little compromises that, uh, that go along with that. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's the name of the game with, with adaptation. It's compromise. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the promo is awesome. I'm just telling everybody out there listening to this, definitely go on Jennifer's site and look at the promo because, I mean, it looks like a, you know, it's a professional looking, you know, I watched it. And I was like, I want to see that movie. I'm like, wait, that's not a movie. That's, <laughs> it's a book. But, I mean, it looks like a professional movie trailer. So it looks you know, yeah. totally awesome. So what's coming up next for you? Um, I'm working on quite a few different things, um, trying to keep them all straight in my head. Um, but I, I've been working on a new book called The Killing Jar, which is about a girl who can steal energy from the natural world, and oh. she's kidnapped by a group of kind of like pagan, hippie commune nature worshippers <laughs> <laughs> who want to use her to become immortal. So that's um, that's what I'm working on, the book I'm working on right now, and I'm also working on a screenplay called Property, which is about um, a land developer who buys um, a piece of undeveloped property and it ends up being kind of a land version of the Bermuda Triangle. So oh. once he enters it, he can't get back out. So it's part survival story, part surreal nightmare. I kind of use my screenwriting to exercise some of the, you know, darker stuff that I can't do in, in YA. Mm-hmm. So that'll be a, that'll be a much darker Tale. And hopefully my husband wants to direct that and I will, um, you know, help out. I like, I like production. It's, it's a nice break from um, just sitting in a chair all the time. So hopefully right. we'll be able to make that movie ourselves and put it out there to the world. <laughs> That's cool. That sounds, that sounds absolutely awesome. So we have a little segment we do at the end here called Rapid Fire, and it's just a series of five either or questions. So I'll just say, you know, day or night, and you just choose whichever one you prefer. Okay. 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 Uh, Santa Monica Pier or the Hollywood Bowl? Um, Hollywood Bowl. Which natural disaster would you rather experience assuming you wouldn't get hurt? A massive earthquake or a massive lightning storm? Ooh, lightning storm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> better Stephen King movie adaptation, Carrie or The Shining? Carrie. Uh, cooler Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez or Jennifer Aniston? 
Jennifer Aniston. And scarier element of the movie Watcher in the Woods, the blindfolded girl who appears in mirrors and pleads for help, or Betty Davis just standing there? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with the blindfolded girl, but that's what's how fun it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I've seen that movie, and Betty Davis creeped me out, so I didn't know if I was the only I one. I know. It's hard. I, that's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer. Oh, thank you again mm-hmm. for having me. You can find out more about Jennifer at her website, jenniferbosworth.com, and you can also watch that awesome book trailer there. And if you have any questions on the craft or business of writing, send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening. 